You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. This is Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, we have specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. From the very beginning, we have been family-owned and family-run. Our tents have become the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers all over the world, and especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who demand utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, our tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. This is Diggle McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AAJ. If you're wondering where to spend that cash that Granny gave you for Christmas because she didn't know where to buy a V-threader, check out the brand new line of approach shoes from AAJ sponsor Black Diamond Equipment. There's a shoe for every climber, whether your approach is from the coffee shop to the gym or an all-day scrambling and climbing mission into the mystery towers. All four shoes come in men's and women's styles, and each has lightweight, comfy knit uppers and sticky Black Mountain rubber. Find them all at blackdiamondequipment.com. Most episodes of The Cutting Edge talk about big new routes, but this time we'll be talking about a failed attempt. But what a grand failure it was. Tenkang Pocha is a mountain nearly 6,500 meters high in Nepal, about a day's walk to the west of busy Namche Bazaar. The north wall is split by a soaring granite pillar leading directly to the summit. The faces on both sides of this pillar have been climbed, but not the most obvious line. It is without a doubt one of the most impressive unclimbed features in Nepal. In October, 27-year-old Canadian climber Quentin Roberts attempted this pillar with Juhok Nutala from Finland. Quentin grew up in the UK and moved to Canada when he was 17, and he's quietly been completing impressive climbs from Peru to Patagonia. Quentin, Yuho, and Tim Banfield from Canada received a John Lachlan Award the biggest climbing grant in the country, for their expedition. But as you'll hear, they were forced to change plans several times before ending up in Nepal. After acclimatizing with an attempt on Chalatse, they headed to Tenkang Poche, where Quentin and Yuho spent six days on the pillar and reached about 5,900 meters, very near the top of the big wall, before encountering a blank slab that seemed unclimbable without bolts. The two had carried no drill and no portal edge, for a wall whose steepest section is roughly the size of El Cap. Committed to a pure ascent of this prize line, they repelled. But as you'll hear, the story isn't over yet. Quentin is definitely going back as soon as he can, and if anything, he's even more committed to the purest style. He spoke about all this with AAJ editor Whitney Clark. So in October, you and Yuho made a really impressive attempt on the north pillar of Tang Kang Poche in Nepal, and you spent six days on the wall but turned around before reaching the summit. But how mm-hmm. did you guys end up there? Because this wasn't your first plan, right? Yeah, no, it wasn't at all. We, we had originally tried to go to a mountain called Chamlang. We wanted to climb the north face. Um it, it was at the time unclimbed when we initially planned on going there, but in the end, tons of other teams also 
planned expeditions to the area. And these Czech guys uh, made the first ascent of the North Face. So we kind of changed our plans to India uh, okay. when we when we heard that you know that that happened. But then a few weeks before we left for Tenkang Poche, uh, tension escalated between India and Pakistan, and they uh, kicked basically a bunch of the expeditions that were happening out, and we had to bail on that trip too. So there was definitely a short period of time where we thought that. We weren't going to be going on a trip in the end, but it worked out, fortunately. And had that mountain been on your radar or was it just kind of like a whim where you guys went there? No, I, so, you know, we were in a, in a, in a depressed lull after not, not being able to mount the expedition to India. And I sat down with my buddy, Alec, and he was like, dude, you, you know, you got a grant to go on a trip, just go somewhere where it's easy. And and so I just, we, we kind of thought maybe going to the Kumbu would be better because you can get permits way more quickly there. But then I basically had no idea what to do because I'd never been to the Kumbu. So I sent some messages to my friends asking desperately if they had any recommendations. And fortunately, Innes, uh, Papa, told told me about this mountain and I got super excited. And then wrote to the other guys and said, hey, do you want to go here? And they said, yes, and it'll work out. Yeah, and the line was previously tried in 2006 by some, was it other, some other Canadians, Matt Mataloni and John Furneaux? Yeah. So did you guys, did you get beta from them or? No, well, Matt, Matt has, has a, a blog online and he wrote a whole bunch about his attempt then uh, on that blog. So that was really helpful, but I didn't, and John sent some messages to, back and forth with Tim. So we did we did get some beta, but not, not a huge amount. Since this was your first trip to the Himalaya, did you do anything different to prepare from past trips you've done? Mm, I think that it, it is really important to to be as fit as you can be. Um, but I think more important is your ability to not get sick while acclimatizing and to also acclimatize really well. Um, Colin Haley was visiting here in Canmore just before I left and that was basically what he told me to do he said dude just chill out before you leave build your immune system to a maximum and uh and take your time while acclimatizing and I really tried to kind of take that advice to heart and I do really think it helped Yuho got sick and that completely took him out for the beginning of the trip and and Tim and I were kind of battling battling a cold the whole time there's a lot there's a lot of influenza around and and uh having a high immune system or a strong immune system is 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 really key because you you kind of you might plan a two month expedition but it always seems to somehow shrink and get smaller and uh and and losing you know two weeks to sickness or something is is can be pretty damaging to a trip so i think it's it's really important to do your best to avoid that and rest and i don't know eat vitamin c before you get on the airplane or or whatever but that was definitely a big part of the planning. Stay away from the, the whiskey shots. Despite how tempting it might be. <laughs> the, the Irish pub in Namche is, is a nice place. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's hard to recover at altitude. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing that I was I was struggling with while I was there and, and acclimatizing was like my desire not to get super weak. So I was trying to hangboard still too. But I'm not sure if mm-hmm. I, I think I think it is a good idea to do it because otherwise you really do lose a whole bunch of fitness that you want to use for your other projects that you have all over the place. But um, but yeah, balancing that with not pushing yourself too hard because because I remember like 
the the first day we hiked up to Namche, it was a pretty short day from Fort Sis and Namche, which a lot of people do, but I charged it, you know, I went super fast and um because I was feeling really good. And then instantly that night I stopped feeling really good. And uh, yeah, you just have to be gentle to yourself. Yeah. Keep your eye on the prize. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, keep yeah, which is difficult for twitchy ADD people, but yeah. Definitely. I hear you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And ha- had you ever been to that altitude before? Yes, I, I had I had been up to that that height, but I uh I hadn't been to what our like Chamlang's seven thousand five hundred meters high, which I had never been to. So initially our kind of plan was to go and experience a, a higher altitude than we had experienced before. And then instead it became trying to climb a more technical mountain than we had climbed before, but at a similar altitude to what we had experienced. Yuho has been up to 7,000 meters, but I haven't before. And had you and Yuho climbed uh, before? Uh, yeah, we, we had. We climbed, but not enough in my honest opinion. Um, we, we climbed uh, in Patagonia together and we had a, a really great time there. But the reality is that obviously climbing in Patagonia for a day is not the same as going on a giant expedition. And we had also planned to try and meet up in Chamonix or somewhere before before this trip, but it just ne- things didn't really line up. So um, I think it would have been good to have our, our partnership more dialed in, for sure. So why don't you take me through the first few days of climbing on the mountain and what, what was it like and how were the conditions? So we, we spent two days looking at the face before we actually started climbing. We had planned on watching the face for one day, but it changed so much in that one day that we decided that we kind of needed another one. And initially we had planned to climb a whole bunch of ice, or what we thought was ice, uh, to get to the top. And, and watching it sublimate or blow off or whatever was happening to it that day kind of made us basically rethink our strategy and where we wanted to climb. So that was it turned out to be really good that we had, had taken that time watching it. Um, but yeah, then the first day we, it, we cut in from the West, uh, on a ramp that skipped a whole bunch of the sort of mossy lower angle slabby stuff. And then, yeah, the second day was also a, a more, there were more technical pitches, but, uh, it was also much easier than I guess the rest of the route, which turned out to be a giant big wall. So and yeah, was the that... fir- first days were lots of, you know, fast moving, lots of simul climbing and um, also just, yeah, I guess, planning what we were going to do. Yeah. And you guys reached um, the 2006 high point. Was it like after two and a half days? Yeah. So we, yeah, yeah. We basically got to it on our second day. I fixed a rope uh, up uh, 30 meters up the head wall and their high point was another 30 meters above that. Okay. So was so the... Like, that was the lower part of the wall mostly independent from their line or was it similar terrain? Cause it took them like nine days, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, and they were, you know, they were climbing in a totally different style too. So mm-hmm. they, they had tons of ropes to lug around and um, just way more time consuming climbing. But yeah, we, we basically skipped the whole, the whole beginning of what they climbed by going, by taking this ramp. And then after you guys got, to after you finished the ramp did you get to the base of the headwall um so no we had to do some traverse pitches into the into the headwall uh the, i think we would we would have so let's say the mountain has um 
three thirds. It has the ramps at the beginning, then the steep part, which is the rest of the pillar, and then the final summit ridge. And they're basically around 600 meters or so big each section. And the ramp joins about halfway up the first third of those ramps. So you still have to climb a whole bunch of the slabby stuff, but we were independent because we were coming in from the side. And uh, yeah, and so the first day we covered most of that ground and then and it it continuously gets steeper so the second day we covered much less ground but much more technical ground too and i read that you guys were you're wearing rock shoes and then you're maybe switching between rock shoes and crampons or yeah yeah it was the climbing was totally wild um this, this is specifically like when once we started climbing on the head wall uh which was basically um you know before that there was enough ice everywhere to be able to mix climb and um you you stand on your crampons and everything but it just got so steep that it was way more efficient to climb with rock shoes and so and also the the that that head wall gets about 2 hours of sun in the morning so we jugged the ropes before the sun and then started climbing in the sun with rock shoes and basically it got too cold to wear rock shoes by the time it got to the afternoon but we for those, and th- those were the steepest pitches too. For those four or five pitches, we were sort of rotating between rock shoes and boots and crampons and tools and and aid climbing and free climbing and <laughs> you know all sorts of it, absolutely every every skill in the tool bag came out. I think. Yeah. 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 Well, it was that- it was really really fun climbing like that. Um, fun trying to be super efficient jumping through all of those systems you know, even on one pitch of rock. Yeah. The higher you guys got and obviously got colder and did, was there more ice that you guys were able to kind of climb the higher altitude? Yes. Well, well, it, yeah, there was more ice, but it, the ice, and I've, I've heard this for the area in general from talking to other people who've tried, who've tried, tried things there is generally not super good. Like the, in the upper section of the steep terrain, a lot of the time the ice would just kind of be pasted onto the rock like a like a, a more like a wind slab on rock rather than like actually ice. You'd, it, it held tension when you climbed on it. It held tension until it broke, and then the whole thing broke because it wasn't bonded at all, and it kind of fractured like a wind slab would. Um, so it was, it was kind of insecure and scary, but. A lot of the time, if you dug through that, you'd get to cracks in the back and you could still get gear and, and keep climbing. So, yeah, it was never really super confidence-inspiring and definitely never like, quick-moving. So I think it'd be better just to go at a time where there's less ice, really. Or try and, you know, you'd have to wait for it. Maybe, maybe there are different... Maybe the ice can be better, but I'm not relying on that for my next attempt. Hmm. And um, so after... I guess four days of climbing. You guys took a rest day. Yeah, was it like five thousand eight hundred eighty meters. Yeah, I I don't. And, I still don't know if it was a good idea to take that rest day or not. But we're definitely super tired after the uh, after the the first part of the route. So it felt like we it felt like we 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 really needed a rest day. Um, but our bivy was kind of slanted, and we didn't have the warmest bivy system, and. Uh, we were dealing with frost building up on the inside of the tent every night, obviously, because you're that high in it. And it would just grow these giant hoar frost tentacles. And then the spindrift that hit the tent would knock it into the tent and just totally soak us. 
And then we, because we were on a North Pillar, we only had, you know, an hour or two of sun in the morning, if we had any sun at all, to try and dry these things out. But we needed that time to climb. So it was, you know, the, the eternal dilemma. Were you guys sharing a sleeping bag and, and have one tent or? No, we didn't. We, you know, to be honest, we didn't really put enough time and effort into our sleeping system. Uh, Yuho brought a minus 16 sleeping bag, which seemed pretty heavy. Um, and I brought a minus seven, which seemed pretty light. Uh, yeah, and that was just how we, how we rolled. Um, I think it would have been a lot better if we had had a two-person sleeping bag, which is definitely the plan for the next go. Mm-hmm. So yeah. during your on your rest day, were you guys both still motivated to keep going or were you experiencing doubt about what was above you? Uh, I think we were both still pretty motivated. I mean, we obviously both had different degrees of motivation at different times throughout the the, the climb. But yeah, I think... I, in in our initial answers, we said that we came down because um, we got slabbed out and there was no ice to climb, which is true. We got totally shut down up there, and it definitely seemed quite. I was already, you know, twenty meters run out, and I couldn't do another twenty meters of run out on the terrain that was above. So it was an obvious turnaround point, but we could have gone down and you know down the eighty meters that we had just climbed, and then traverse eighty meters, and then try another way that would have maybe gone or maybe not gone and we just didn't really the whole route was like that basically up until this point but the difference was that this time we didn't really have the energy or the firepower to keep going so yeah i mean like we say that it was because we got turned around but i don't think realistically we kind of burned burned all our fuel yeah it would you know the excuse sure sound sounded pretty good at least that's how i'm thinking now I'm so excited. I'm so fired up to go back. And I'm like, I'm, and I'm convincing myself that I, that it's going to go, you know, so maybe that's why that's how I'm persuading myself. But yeah, I think, I think with more energy up there, we can take it to the top. So Yuho was quoted as saying that this line would go with pure means or not at all. So why did you guys feel so strongly about climbing an alpine style? I think just because that's, you know, the style that we as climbers climb in is, is basically everything that we have is such an it's such a crazy pursuit in the first place so you might as well make it even more crazy with with uh, ethics and uh and that i mean that that mountain is an incredible mountain there are very few like it in the world and there there are few if no technical routes of that nature at that altitude and you know maybe the the huber route on kishtwar is similar but you know that that had bolts so how it would be really I, I think we just both felt that it would be really cool to um climb this incredible pillar in a totally pure way and ideally leave nothing on the mountain you know we bail down the pillar so there are our anchors on the way down but in the future whoever hopefully you know I go back and I can clean those anchors on the way up and leave the mountain completely clean, which I think it pretty, would be a pretty cool way to do it if you, if you manage to pull it off. So do you think that bolts have a place in the mountains? Um, yeah, I mean, so another one, this, another one of my projects is in the Bugaboos, and that's a super hard kind of route that I, you know, that I think the pitches that we're trying to free would initially have been a a4 um and i'm i'm putting bolts in on it so i'm not completely 
uh, against bolts or anything like that. I do think that they have a place, um, but I think that there are, there's also a place for no bolts. Uh, yeah, it just it's very circumstantial. It kind of depends on on where you are and the local ethics and the local culture and how much climbing there is in that area too. All of those things kind of come into play. Yeah. I mean, I think it's bold to go up on a mountain of that scale and see that slab and not bring bolts. Like I think. Totally. And, and like we, 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 I, I climbed some fairly run out pitches because it's also quite compact stone up there. The other thing, so it is bold, but we didn't really anticipate it to be quite so difficult and it was kind of relentlessly difficult it, it uh it just every pitch you'd you'd think okay maybe the angle will ease now and then it would be just as nails for some maybe a slightly different reason but um it was just yeah really hard climbing so i think in hindsight uh maybe i would have brought bolts if i had known that it was going to be as hard as it was but we didn't really expect that so yeah, I was going to ask you, like, do you regret your decision to not bring bolts? Because I guess, I mean, I guess you said that there might have been another way around. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if we had had absolutely, if I, I was in a good stance, and if we had had a hand drill, we wouldn't have had to turn around where we turned around. Yeah, and and in that sense, it's a bit of a shame. But I also think that it was our conscious decision not to take them, and we stuck with it. And when I go back. I would like to do that again. I don't want to go up with a drill just to, you know, make the mountain bow to me. I'd rather try and try and do it properly again. So I don't know. It's hard to say. Sure, I would have liked to get get higher on the route, but um, I guess if you're planning on going back, or if other parties are planning to try it, how do you expect them to navigate that section without the use of bolts? Like just being more bold, or do you expect there to be some ice in certain different seasons, or yeah, it you, sounds like you guys may have seen or you thought you saw ice, but it might have just been snow. Yeah, I mean, it was that same ice that I was describing earlier, you know, that kind of wind slabby, nice kind of half snow, half ice, not not good stuff. But I do think that there could there, there could be times where, where, yeah, the ice is good enough and you can climb that section securely or, yeah, you could be super bold and climb it. Um, but my plan is to just go a different way and try and follow it's it's steeper terrain but it's it has cracks to climb so i think at least <laughs> yeah <laughs> well there's one way to find out yeah exactly go all the way back up there and then try again <laughs> yeah. Yeah. um so what was the most difficult part of the six days you spent on the mountain? Is it the technical climbing or is it kind of more of a mental challenge for you? Uh, the most difficult part, I think the the worst part at least, was we, we had one bivy kind of mid-head wall. So the, on that, Yuho's a total boss with moderate terrain, but he hasn't got a whole bunch of experience on, you know, big wally style climbing. And so that, that, you know, the time that we climbed on the head wall, basically, you know, I led most of the day and was totally bagged. It got dark, and I think we climbed two pitches in the dark. And then um, basically neither of us said that we had the energy to keep going. And we just and there was this kind of like crappy little alcove thing that we dug out in the snow, but it was in the spindrift path. And so we just got, we had this absolutely horrendous bivy uh, in the spindrift path. For, you know, I don't, I don't think the spindrift stopped for the entire time that we were there, all the way overnight, and there are long nights there. 
Um, and then, yeah, into the morning as we started again. And then, the, you know, I think it was just, it just sadly happened to be that night that was the most spin drifty, but it was an awful night. The spin drift went inside our, we used, we had a first light with us and we used it like a bivy bag. And I was sort of crouched forward with my head pushed down by the rock because I couldn't, I couldn't lean back. You had a bit of a better seat where he could kind of lean back. But so I was like stuffed forward against my knees all night getting pummeled by spindrift, the spindrift would like find its way into the first light and then pull at our feet and obviously totally numb our feet. And so then to deal with that, you'd try and like get the, get dump the sleep, uh, the, the first light out. But then in the process of doing that, you, there's more spindrift coming in. It's crazy how much spindrift falls in such a short period of time, all the time, just fill buckets and buckets of spindrift. But yeah, it was, it was a really rough night actually. And, I think that night is the reason why we decided to take a rest day um, and wh- why we just felt so gassed because none of us, neither of us slept a wink. Um, we we're just kind of trying to recover and rest and brew water. And But yeah, it obviously wasn't at all restful, shivering there. And and then, yeah, we, when, we tr- when we got higher on the route the next day, uh, we were just still so tired from the bivy that we thought that we needed to rest again. So yeah, I think that, that that night on the wall might have been the the downfall. So in going back now, I'd like to figure out a way to climb the entire headwall until you can get to a better ledge um in one go. How how long of a section would that be to like make a push? The headwall like that push from ledge to ledge uh would be I think about 300 maybe 350 meters of really hard climbing. When it's 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 so hard that there's not even a there's not even a butt ledge there's not even a ledge that's a foot wide on that entire section of the wall. Um, apart from that, maybe funny little alcove that uh, that we dug into in the snow, but I, I, uh, that obviously wasn't good. So you'd ha- either have to take some kind of a port, like a hanging sleeping system, like a porter ledge or something. Those inflatable porter ledges might be a good solution there, mm-hmm. or just try and climb it all in one go. I think that we can. We were pretty close to climbing in one go. We were only two pitches from snow, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I think that that would be quite feasible to do. Yeah, and do you think that the fall is the best time for the for trying that mountain again? Or, um, well, I don't know. Nobody's ever tried it in the spring, so going there in the spring is kind of a would would be kind of a gamble because nobody. It's hard to find any. I've seen some photos of what it looks like in the spring and it's definitely a lot drier um but at the same time you don't have snow on the ledges and and there are a whole bunch of other unknowns that would come into play um so as far as like beta and history of the route go fall is definitely the season that it's been tried the most largely because there's just way more ice and that's what people have been gunning for um Mm -hmm. the whole you know that easier the, the easier lower slabs that i was talking about earlier um are much easier to climb when there's ice on them. That's for sure. Uh, and and we climbed ice on all of. Them. I mean, it was kind of mixed and sometimes te- technical scratchy terrain, but there, it was always between ice. And and we made our way up that part in part super efficiently because we were able to climb ice uh, almost the whole time. So if you went back in the spring, those lower slabs would be covered in moss. There would be no snow, and then you'd have to actually slab or rock climb the lower slabs and the lower slabs are quite compact and don't take a whole bunch of gear either so um yeah it would add a whole bunch of 
difficulty down low probably and then and maybe be a little easier higher up where you're trying to climb the rock purely anyways i'm planning on going back with rock shoes and heated socks nice yeah we'll see how it goes um yeah yeah and i think we're gonna go back in the spring too and and see see what it's like i'm I'm super eager to get back so the sooner the better yeah um and I guess like my last question is, do you consider your attempt a failure or a success? I, I, I consider every failure of mine a success, if that makes any sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I mean, so much, a big part of the reason why I climb is for the learning involved. And it's like life learning, you know, it's not just climbing learning, but I'm super thankful for all of the climbing learning too. And and this in this on this trip we had definitely had both. Had tons of climbing learning, um, expedition to the Kumbu region learning, uh, and and personal learning too for sure. Um, so yeah, no, it was it was a really good trip and it was definitely a success. But I I I failed at the objective, so I'm going back as soon as possible <laughs> to try and complete the objective. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, and good luck. For sure. Thank you. Nice to chat with you. As you heard, Quentin is very keen to return to Nepal this coming spring. His partner will be Jesse Huey from Colorado. We hope they have a safe and successful climb. Thanks to Black Diamond for supporting this episode of The Cutting Edge and to our main sponsor, Hilleberg the Tentmaker. I'm very happy to say that Hilleberg has signed up for another year as presenting sponsor of The Cutting Edge, making this show possible. Hilleberg's 2020 Tent Handbook is now available online, packed with stories and technical info about these bomb-proof tents. Order your copy at hilleberg.com catalog. If you like what you hear on The Cutting Edge, we'd be grateful for comments at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please consider a donation to support the show. It takes only a couple of minutes, and it ensures we can keep reaching out to climbers around the world to tell their stories. Go to AmericanAlpineClub.org slash donate and choose American Alpine Journal from the drop-down menu. On behalf of all the editors of the American Alpine Journal, this is Dougal McDonald, wishing you happy climbs and a very happy new year. <laughs>